0: Welcome back to HackRack. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and we are back with Keywords Part 2 with the one and only Dr. Jillian Isaac. We got incredible responses about the first uh, episode of this that we did, Keywords Part 1, where we talked about uh, the cricothyroid membrane and propofol. And so we are going to continue the series, and this is Part 2, and we're going to talk about laryngospasm and ketamine. Jillian, welcome back to the show.
1: Thank you. So I'm going to start with ketamine, if that's okay. I'm going to reverse your order. Absolutely. And I am going to go through all the points that are listed on the keywords that the ABA expects you guys to know. I'm going to structure it a little bit differently as we're going to do a few Key points, and then do a couple questions and kind of flip going back and forth so you don't try not to lose interest in what we're talking about here. Sounds great. All right. So, the first aspect that they wanted us to cover is mechanism of action, which I'm going to tell you is probably not a huge high yield point. There's like one question you're going to get, and that's (laughs) like a classic question over and over. But just to review it really quickly is that ketamine, ketamine, listen to me, ketamine produces dose dependent CNS depression, which leads to a dissociative anesthetic state characterized by professional analgesia and amnesia. And I actually starred analgesia because I think you're going to start seeing questions more and more about its analgesic effects, especially as we're trying to get away from opioids and opioid sparing and we're using more and more in pain management. But that's such a new idea that you're not really seeing the test questions yet, but I wouldn't be surprised if they start popping up in Absolutely. the next couple of years.
0: Now, do you think they'll ask about kind of dose ranges as in that low dose is uh kind of that opioid adjunct effect and then higher dose obviously the dissociative effect
1: yeah i think they'll ask both and probably the oh i'm blanking on the term but the more you give like the longer it sticks around type of idea right, context yeah thank you yeah, testing, yeah. yeah. That's it. yeah. Uh, so i think you'll see that and then in dosing and it's adjunct use with other pain modalities yeah, yeah. but they're not asking it yet Uh, so it works as a NMDA receptor antagonist and that you have to know. It's like one of the only ones that's NMDA, like all the other IV agents are GABA except for this one. And that's really the question that you're going to see the most. And no one really knows for sure why you get this dissociative anesthetic state, but the proposed mechanism is that it's an inhibition of the thalamocortical pathways and a stimulation of the limbic system. So flat out, this is the question that you're going to see. It's Which drug exerts its main CNS action by inhibiting the NMDA receptors? And it's going to list all of propofol, midazlam, otominate, ketamine. And the correct answer is, Jed, you want ketamine? (laughs) Ketamine, yeah. Uh, The other ones are usually GABA. And this is a question that comes up time and time again. And it's an easy point to get. And you just check it off and move on.
0: Right. Now, they wouldn't, these aren't, this is not an induction agent, but they would not be able to put in there nitrous oxide or. Uh, magnesium, because those things also have some NMDA receptor antagonism, as does um, methadone. Uh, but again, those are not induction yeah. agents.
1: That's a fair point. So, in terms of pharmacodynamics and pharmacokinetics, it's metabolized by the liver by the P450 system. And today, I learned by reading my bearish is that it's metabolized to norketamine, which in and of itself has some potency. It's about a third to the fifth to a fifth as potent as ketamine is and then nor ketamine is excreted by the kidney and that It is controversial about the effect for opioid sparing techniques because there was a lot of buzz and a lot of excitement about this, and then there was a big study that showed that it might not be as good as we thought, but now that we're getting away from opioids, I think we're swinging the pendulum back in that direction. And again, like we talked about earlier, I think you're going to start seeing those questions, but they're not in the banks quite yet. Sounds good. All right. So the other thing that they want us to talk about is a little bit about side effects, and it's well known, especially I work in OB, so I give ketamine quite frequently, is that you have a higher incidence of psychomimetic reactions, which includes hallucinations, nightmares, changes in short-term memory, maybe even cognition, and it is dose-dependent, and it can actually be mitigated a bit by co-administration of other drugs, such as benzodiazepines or propofol, which is what I do in my practice very frequently. I give benzodiazepines. So uh, here are a couple questions that you might see according to side effects. So the incidence of unpleasant dreams associated with emergence from ketamine anesthesia can be reduced by the administration of A, caffeine, B, droperidol, C, physostigmine, D, midazolam. And I would go with D. Yeah, we covered it. And the other ones are just kind of throwaway answers for people who don't know. I think you could probably intuit this one, but it's one that you might see on a test. And the other one, I put this in because I don't know if this is as intuitive, but emergence delirium occurs most often with A, seboflurane, B, desflurane, C, ketamine, and D, propofol.
0: Yeah, so, uh, you know, honestly, there I'd probably have to go with sevofluorine. Very
1: good. See, I tried to trick you. Jed's a smart one. <laughs> yeah. I did try to trick you because all these answers are ketamine, but it actually is not as associated with emergence delirium, and that's where they're going to try and trick you because everyone knows that you get all these weird psychomimetic side effects from ketamine, but it's not necessarily emergence delirium, and it's still sevofluorine is the number one there, uh, it's particularly in children. Right where we're using it in PEDS. I don't know if they're using it in PEDS now to do uh, for sedation premedication. I never really used it in my residency, but it's in the textbook as one of the premeds you can use in pediatrics.
0: Ketamine is- Yeah, ketamine. Okay. So, but
1: it's not associated with the emergence delirium. It's right. really the fluorine. So the big one, and I think this is the highest yield topic when it comes to ketamine, are the effects on different organ systems, uh, especially cerebral blood flow, cardiac um, respiratory system. So we're going to go through that. And then there's actually a fair number of questions there. Like The vast majority of questions you're going to see are about its effects on organ systems. So traditionally, it's contraindicated in patients with elevated ICP because it increases CMRO2, cerebral blood flow, and ICP. So you tend not to use it. Although I guess from what i read that might be a little bit controversial and it might not be as bad as initially suspected but you got to think that the test questions aren't up with like current data so it's still contraindicated and you're not going to use it in icp and it still increases cerebral blood flow and uh, metabolism of oxygen in the brain
0: and we should just say that cmro 2 is the cerebral metabolic rate of o2 consumption of the brain
1: thank you i'm being lazy <laughs> Uh, and then, in terms of the respiratory system, it actually has very good bronchodilatory activity. So, it can be an IV induction agent of choice if someone's in active bronchospasm in an emergency situation and you can't really get it under control with other agents at the time. It's one to think about. Minimal respiratory depression, which is, um, it has its place in different anesthetics when you want people to be breathing spontaneously. So as for cardiovascular effects, you're an intensive care doctor. So I'm going to ask you what some of the cardiovascular effects are of ketamine.
0: Yeah. So the classic uh, dyad is hypertension and tachycardia, though there is also some uh, cardiac depressant effect. And so What you have to be careful of is a patient. The way it it causes hypertension, tachycardia is through a a release of um, catechols. So if a patient has no more catechols to release, they're already you know maximally catecholized. Then uh, you may actually see that cardiac depressant effect play out, and you can actually see hypotension. So uh, that uh, is kind of how I think about it.
1: Right. So it increases blood pressure and heart rate, and it's a direct stimulation of the sympathetic nervous system, which is how it does it. But Jed is one hundred percent correct in that it. Uh, can cause myocardial depression in seriously ill patients who have depleted catecholamines. And I saw that test question once, and I haven't been able to actually find it, but it is out there. So someone who's really ill, you actually don't want to use it, although it is good in people who are acutely uh, ill um, in terms of bronchospasm, cardiac tamponade. Uh, we use it in OB all the time. Sometimes in pediatric patients, it definitely has its role. So I'm going to do a few questions. And like I said, the effects on systems is the hands down, like the highest yield for this drug for ketamine. So I managed to find five questions in this. And I love the first one because it's just like ketamine decreases and it gives a list. So ketamine decreases A, bronchomotor tone, B, intracranial pressure, C, intraocular pressure, D, salivation, E, seizure threshold. So for me, I think three of these are pretty easy to cross off. Uh, it increases intracranial pressure. It actually increases intraocular pressure, pressure and it increases salivation. The one that I think could catch people is the seizure threshold because we do not really ever talk about it. And actually, it's controversial. We did look it up before this podcast. And there are some studies that say it decreases seizure threshold and others says that it increases seizure threshold. There's there's a reason why some of these questions have been retired, but I do think there's always something to be learned from doing questions. So, their correct answer is a bronchomotor tone. Right. Um. So the next question for effects on organ systems is, which of the following is the most likely effect of IM intramuscular ketamine used for induction of anesthesia in a two-year-old child undergoing elective surgery? A, bronchoconstriction. B, decreased heart rate. C, decreased intracranial pressure. D, increased salivation. E, respiratory depression. And we kind of talked about this before, but we can go through them. So bronchoconstriction?
0: Right, so it does the opposite.
1: Right. Decreased heart rate? Opposite decrease icp opposite increase elevation.
0: we know it does that
1: respiratory depression
0: so we luck we like ketamine because it does not do that. right
1: exactly so here's another example each of the following will alter the position or slope of the co2 ventilatory response curve except the answer options are hypoxemia fentanyl nitrous oxide and ketamine so of those jed what would you pick
0: so I think what this is asking is which of these does not make you more responsive to changes in CO2, and ketamine should not have a resp- effect on that. Like we said, it doesn't really affect respiratory uh, drive or respiratory rate, so uh, hypoxemia, fentanyl, and nitrous all can affect the response to CO2.
1: Exactly, and the next question is pretty much... Uh, the same question, just in a different format, which is respiratory depression is least after the induction dose of which of the following drugs, and the options are atomidate, ketamine, fentanyl, propofol, so ketamine. So again, you kind of see a theme here over and over, the type of questions they're asking about ketamine. And one last one for... Um, effect on organ systems. And uh, this one's even better than ketamine decreases. It just says the word ketamine. That's like it. Ketamine. And the options are decreases cerebral blood flow, augments the CO2 responsiveness of the cerebral vasculature, reduces cerebral metabolic rate, increases cerebral blood volume.
0: Right. And so it increases cerebral blood volume because it is going to increase cerebral blood flow.
1: Exactly. So again, those are probably the highest yield things that you're going to see with ketamine and what is going to be on the test. Uh, The other things that the ABA wanted us to cover would be common indications and then common contraindications. So I came up with this list and tell me if you would supplement or take away from this. It's commonly used in OB. Uh, especially if the neuroaxial isn't working, you don't want to put someone to sleep, difficult airway complications worry for difficult airway. So we use it all the time. Uh, It can be used in pediatrics, as we talked about, for premedication. It's great in bronchospasm and for cardiac tamponade. Uh, You have to worry about patients with coronary artery disease because it will increase your oxygen, myocardial oxygen demand, and not do anything to help you with the supply. So it's relatively contraindicated in coronary artery disease. We talked about seriously ill patients with no more catecholamines. It can actually have a myocardial depression effect, and that's probably the trickiest question you'd see because everyone thinks about the sympathetic stimulation of ketamine, and it's relatively contraindicated in patients who are hypertensive and tachycardic. You kind of have to look at the clinical picture there, and then patients with elevated ICP.
0: Yeah, those sound great. Uh, I personally love to use it for awake intubation, so that may be another indication.
1: So I have a few questions there for, like, indications and contraindications. Uh, the first one is uh, OB, my world. A 32-year-old parturient with a history of spinal fusion, severe asthma, and hypertension with a blood pressure of 180 over 110 is brought to the operating room wheezing. So I'm just going to stop right there because this is such – I love this question. It's it's a well-written question. Uh, I'm that nerdy that I really care about the way questions are written. But it gives you a lot of information just in one sentence. Is one, she's had a spinal fusion, so neuroaxial is off the table. They've taken that off the table for you. And now you're in a position where they've got, she's wheezing with asthma and she has hypertension. So you're kind of caught between two different things, which is really common in our world, right? You kind of have to do risk-benefit analysis. And she needs an emergency section under general because she has a prolapse, or the fetus has a prolapsed umbilical cord. So which of the following induction agents would be most appropriate for her induction? So I picked this because we did harp on using ketamine with patients who are actively bronchospasming and with asthma, and while that would be great for that, it would not be awesome for someone who is profoundly hypertensive, like 180 over 110. So the options are A, B, midazolam, C, ketamine, D, propofol.
0: So I think you can get rid of ketamine because she's already hypertensive. Right. You can probably get rid of midazolam because we don't really want to give benzos to a woman who's pregnant if we can avoid it.
1: Well, yeah, we're out of the first trimester, but it's not an awesome induction drug. It's not right. a traditionally used drug at all.
0: Great. So that leaves us seboflurane and propofol. Um, both have some bronchodilatory properties, so in terms of her wheezing, both could be good. Cevofluorine is a in an adult takes a long time for induction, so it's we don't tend to do awake inhaled inductions in adults. And so. uh, I think my
1: N is one. Yeah,
0: right. And and so. (laughs) It was not
1: an awesome experience. (laughs) I'm
0: I'm not at all surprised. Right. And so I think, especially in a parturian who's at higher risk for aspiration, a prolonged, prolonged induction does not sound appealing. So I think that's how we get rid of cebofluorine. And that leaves us propofol, which does. Obviously, bring blood pressure down, and also has some—not as much as ketamine—but some bronchodilatory properties.
1: Okay, so here's another one. Again, another OB patient, 38-year-old primiparous patient with placenta previa and active vaginal bleeding arrives in the operating room with a systolic blood pressure of 85. A cesarean section is planned. The patient is lightheaded and scared. Which of the following anesthetic induction plans would be the most appropriate for this patient? So, A, spinal anesthetic with 12 to 15 milligrams of bupivacaine. B, general anesthetic induction. With two milligrams per kilogram of propofol and paralysis with succinylcholine. C. General anesthesia induction with one milligram per kilogram of ketamine and paralysis with succinylcholine. D. Replace lost blood volume first, then use any anesthetic the patient wishes.
0: All right. So that is a longer stem. You're going to want to make sure you read it carefully. Um, but I think the key here is that the patient's hypotensive
1: and bleeding with a placenta previa, actively bleeding, unstable.
0: Right. So you you're not going to want to drop her pressure more, and you can't wait a long time. So D, replacing blood volume first, uh, you can't. are right. not going to wait around for that. And
1: then you're not going to use any anesthetic the patient wishes.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, spinal again, risk of dropping the pressure. It's a relative
1: plate. contraindication. Hypovolemia.
0: Right. So probably not do A, which is the spinal. Uh, induction with propofol. While you could do that if you were using some push doses of pressor along with it, this doesn't give you that option. It just says propofol and sucks. And so again, because of the hypotension, probably not the best answer. So that leaves us with the academy.
1: And the key there is most appropriate. Let's be honest, a lot of us would do propofol and succinylcholine and chase it with Phenylephrine andor ephedrine, but I think what they're going for is most appropriate in that answer. They want the ketamine because it will give you the sympathetic surge in someone who's hypotensive. Absolutely. Yeah. So, one last one that doesn't really fall into any of the categories that I gave you, but I thought it was an interesting question because I have seen it come up and it has to do with does ketamine cross the placenta? So it's a parturient receives ketamine for an induction of general anesthesia prior to a cesarean section, along with succinylcholine. So GA ketamine, succinylcholine, which of the following is most likely to be present in the newborn infant? A, normal muscle tone, B, bradycardia, C, opisthotonos, D, respiratory depression, and E, seizures. So to be fair, I had no idea what opisthotonos was. And that's a brilliant question, too, because people are going to be like, oh, man, that's yeah. got, I don't know what that is. It's got to be that. I think,
0: that's op, I think it's opistotinous.
1: Oh, did I say it wrong? Oh, good. I See, I even said it wrong. I didn't even know. I had to look it up.
0: And I think, uh, if I remember correctly, from medical school, it I'll is what you. you get when you have tetanus. Tetanus. Right? Exactly.
1: Yeah. I'm impressed. Yet. I'm impressed. Yeah. So, do you, looking at the answers. So, normal muscle tone, bradycardia, the word I can't say, respiratory depression, and seizures. Do you have a answer?
0: Well, because of your pre-pre uh, view to this, <laughs> I think it has to do with crossing the placental barrier. Perhaps I don't know, but I'm going to go with normal muscle tone. Probably because yeah. um, it, either it may not get there, or because ketamine does not have a lot of effect on the muscle tone. Right. So
1: it does. It does cross the. Uh, placenta and ketamine levels in a newborn, uh, in the like the cords when they sample ketamine from the cords, it only takes about a minute and a half for it to equal maternal mm. venous level. So it's actually very very quick. But it's safe,
0: right? And it doesn't affect for the fetus, tone.
1: and it's not going to affect muscle tone. But it's not going to cause tetanus-like muscle spasms. And just as a review, it's a little off topic, but they always ask what does not cross the placenta. So I think that's just worthwhile to go through. There are only four things. If you can remember these four things that don't cross the placenta, all paralytics, glycoparolate, insulin, heparin. If you remember that, everything else does. So yeah. I just want to throw that and in so there.
0: The sucks. So the point of this question is that the ketamine will get there, but doesn't affect muscle tone. The succinylcholine won't get there. Exactly. And so therefore, yeah. you'll have normal yeah. muscle tone. Right.
1: Uh, so uh, just to really quick recap, I think the high yield review for ketamine is going to be the mechanism of action on the NMDA receptors, all of its different effects on organ systems and when it's indicated and when it's contraindicated.
0: Awesome. Love it. All right. Great review of ketamine. Let's move on to laryngospasm.
1: Awesome. All right. So the next topic from the ABA keywords, it's under common complications. So it's common complications, The laryngospasm. It's not a long topic, but you definitely are going to see test questions, usually two or three, in my opinion, maybe one or two, but it definitely comes up on these exams. So it's really prevalent in children. I remember in pediatrics, you see it Fairly commonly in patients emerging from anesthesia when you pull in the endotracheal tubes. And then 23% of all critical post op respiratory events in adults are due to laryngospasm, which I didn't realize until I was looking through Bearish again in preparing for this. So there are triggers that can cause laryngospasm. So you want to just go ahead and list a couple?
0: All right. So the ones I think of are uh, light anesthesia and then basically anything uh, coming into contact with the cords. So it can, that can be saliva, blood, um, mucus, uh, anything that's going to irritate the cords and cause them to spasm. I'm sure there are others.
1: Vomit is the other one. And they also say pain in any part of the body and then pelvic and or abdominal visceral stimulation. So in my experience working with residents, the most common scenario where I see laryngospasm is actually with an LMA. And they're not, quote-unquote, deep enough. So they have an LMA, breathing spontaneously, surgical stimulation, laryngospasm. To yep. me, I, I see that a lot. And something I warn people of when using an LMA. Pros and cons of LMAs, I really like them. But I've gotten burned a couple of times with this exact same scenario. So the light anesthesia, it's probably the most common scenario yeah, that I see. definitely. Yeah. So the cause of area obstruction during laryngospasm is actually the contraction of the lateral cricoarytenoids, the thyroid and the cricothyroid muscles. So everything is just clamping down together. Your true and false vocal cords will shut on you. And then the big issue is when you're trying to breathe against those that close glottis. So management of it... Number one thing you're going to do is immediate removal of the offending stimulus if it's known.
0: Right. Sometimes it's
1: obvious. Like the surgeon does something, laryngospasm, stop what you're doing. Right. Uh, and then the next step that we tell us is pressure with 100%, 100% uh, oxygen. Yep. Yep. And then if need be.
0: Then you'd have to give deepened sedation. And if that doesn't work, then you'd have to give a paralytic. Yeah.
1: And I feel like laryngospasm really lends itself well to oral board scenarios because there is – it, there is a bit of a gray area when it comes to when do you do CPAP with FIO2 versus just go for it with paralytic, and probably a lot of it has to do with how low that SAT is going. So again, on a standardized test, it's not going to be as gray, but sometimes it can be a little bit hard to parse out but they want you to kind of walk through this algorithm and those are the most questions you're going to see is how do you walk through this algorithm when someone laryngospasms and then the complications of it Uh, so you get negative pressure pulmonary well may you don't always get it but you can get negative pressure pulmonary edema which can result from any obstruction in the airway not just laryngospasm if you have like some foreign body in there you can get it too but uh negative intrathoracic pressure is transmitted to the alveoli, which are unable to expand due to the more proximal obstruction. And so fluid is entrained from the pulmonary capillary bed, and that is what causes negative pressure, pulmonary edema. And the treatment is a lot like you would treat any non cardiogenic edema. So really the key is you want to try to prevent it. So you want to try and predict who's at risk. There in my opinion there are probably two ways one is deep extubation which we don't do a huge amount in adults probably because of our obesity epidemic and patients with asthma um well actually it's good in patients with asthma but we don't do it a lot you do it more in children the deep extubation and then wait until someone's fully awake i think the tendency is it's not fun to see someone gag and cough on a tube but that doesn't mean that they're out of the woods yet and i think that's where we get into trouble when we extubate
0: right so somewhere in between yeah i think. That uh, we used to refer to it as stage two, right? So it was in between that true deep anesthesia and the more awake anesthesia.
1: So just to go through some review questions and how you're going to see this on a test scenario. So the first question is, a patient has decreased lung compliance and hypoxemia after a 30-minute episode of laryngospasm following extubation. What is the most likely cause? So when I'm working with residents in test-taking PrEP, one thing that I really encourage them to do is to cover up the answers and in their head try to answer it. Because if you can answer it in your head, you're really likely that that is the correct answer and you can just answer it and move on. It's a little bit different if you're stuck. Studying for a test, because if you're using questions to study, you really want to go through each answer and know if they're correct or incorrect. But if you're actually in the test scenario, just read the stem and be like, oh, it's this, and then answer it and move on, if you can. You can't always, but... so. Using that technique, you had laryngospasm after extubation, decreased lung compliance and hypoxemia, the most likely causes.
0: It's probably going to be what we just talked about, so negative pressure pulmonary.
1: Right. And in this test, they called it negative pulmonary interstitial hydrostatic pressure, which is the same thing, just a different way to say it. But the other answer choices that they gave would be allergic reaction to the anesthetic, altered alveolar capillary membrane permeability, which I think is a nice distracting answer because it sounds really correct, right. anesthetic-induced lymphatic dysfunction, and then increased pulmonary capillary pressure. So it's negative pressure, pulmonary edema there. So the next one is a 28-year-old with severe laryngospasm after extubation of the trachea following general anesthesia. Administration of 100% oxygen using continuous positive airway pressure does not improve symptoms, and now the saturation is 75%. Which of the following is the most appropriate immediate management? So we kind of walked down this algorithm before for management, and So you've already done the first step, which is the CPAP and FIO2, and now you're still desatting.
0: Right, so here as I said, if they give you the option of you know a bolus of propofol, you could do that, and if not, then you're going to look for a paralytic, probably succinylcholine. Right.
1: Hopefully they won't give you both because I don't. Right. I think it's controversial. You could go either way. I think the textbook answer, if I had to pick one, would be the paralytic. Like if you read Miller and Barish, that's probably the more correct one, even though we don't always do it in the operating room. So the other answer choices they gave here would be laryngeal mask airway. That's wrong because that's just like CPAP. It's another way of providing CPAP. Lidocaine. It's not not really going to help in this scenario racemic epi when are we going to give that more in a
0: yeah strider, strider yeah, like upper airway obstruction edema right
1: yeah. Uh, sexenal was the correct answer, and then cricothyroidotomy. And if you remember from our last podcast where we did the cricothyroid membrane, it's one of those distracting answers. You're like, oh, I remember that. Yeah, maybe, maybe. You know, <laughs> so it's uh, sexenal uh, So the next one is a child has tachypnea immediately after reintubation for intractable ling- laryngospasm. Oxygen saturation is 78% at an FiO2 of 1.0. A chest X-ray of the or chest X-ray taken 15 minutes later is most likely to show. Now, I wasn't sure about this one, and the reason why I wanted to bring it to you, Jed, is I'm not quite sure how long it takes to see a negative pressure pulmonary edema on x-ray. I thought it was longer than 15 minutes, so I was hoping you'd have more light on that answer
0: so interestingly i don't think i've ever gotten a, an immediate chest x-ray i think that when it happens and i have seen it it's pretty you see the symptoms and you kind of know what it is but i think you can see it fairly quickly i mean i have gotten chest x-rays in the pacu how long would that be maybe 30 40 minutes after and and seen it so i think it can appear pretty quickly
1: yeah. So so these are the answer choices. So again, laryngospasm, a low sat with a high FIO2, take a chest x-ray 15 minutes later. So the answer choices are A, bilateral pleural effusions, B, diffuse homogenous pulmonary infiltrates, C, patchy central infiltrates of the right upper lobe, D, pneumothorax, and E, segmental atelectasis at both lung bases.
0: Right. So the, the what they're getting at there with bilateral pleural effusions, obviously something like, you know, Uh, chronic uh, cardiac uh, failure or something like that. This is not an acute process, um, so that doesn't make sense. Uh, The uh, patchy central infiltrates um, of the right upper lobe, they may be getting at uh, um, an aspiration event. Pneumothorax, obviously, is something very different. And then segmental atelectasis, um, again, not going to be caused uh, by this and probably not have this extreme effect if it was just – Atelectasis of the lung bases. So what you, if you think this is negative pressure pulmonary edema, which is what it sounded like, then you should see B, the diffuse homogenous oh. pulmonary infiltrates, which is pulmonary edema. Right.
1: And I think what might be more important about this question is they're pretty much asking what would you expect to see on a chest x-ray and maybe not so much the time frame right. than the results of the chest x-ray. So just two more? We have time for two Absolutely. more? Okay. So a 30-year-old woman undergoes a thyroidectomy under general endotracheal anesthesia. Immediately after extubation while breathing spontaneously, she has the laryngospasm that resolves after 60 seconds of continuous positive airy pressure played by face mask. In the pack, you should develop shortness of breath, dichypnea, hypoxemia, hypoxemia and RAILS. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? So I really like this question because there's so many immediate post-op complications from a thyroid that can lead to strider, dyspnea, shortness of breath. So I really like that they kind of threw it all into one question. So A is gastric aspirin. Gastric acid aspiration, B is myocardial infarction, C, pulmonary edema, D, pulmonary embolism, and E, vocal cord paralysis. So, again, 30 year old had a thyroidectomy. After extubation, she had laryngospasm It resolved with CPAP, and now she's in the PACU, short of breath, tachypnic, hypoxemic, and has rails.
0: I think this is a tough question it because is. <laughs> the aspiration, um, you know, if you're doing CPAP in someone who is not fully awake, then you certainly can cause, um, you can kind of force uh, if they do have uh, some vomiting or even some passive uh, secretions that get up into their airway you can, or into their oropharynx, you can force them down into the lung. So that that is not an impossible answer there. Um, and then amongst the other answer choices, I think that the other one that's, you know, obviously we just talked about likely or more likely would be pulmonary edema. And what I think they're getting at here is that Even that brief, I think they described it as 60 seconds of laryngospasm, and and really uh, in an awake patient who's fighting against that laryngospasm, that can create that negative pressure and cause that pulmonary edema.
1: And I think if it was gastric acid aspiration, they'd have to give you another clue, like something else that would lead you down that pathway. Uh, MI is very unlikely just because of her age, and a PE thyroidectomy isn't a huge long complication, and there are no other like cancer other reasons why you might suspect that and vocal cord paralysis would could happen after a thyroidectomy because of if you had bilateral recurrent laryngeal nerve damage but then you would have stridor and you actually might get that negative pressure pulmonary edema again it looks a lot like laryngospasm but we're not in that area of the woods so i think that's a great question in my opinion yeah um so the last one is a tracheal after tracheal extubation it's a healthy 21 year old has a 30 second episode of laryngospasm with marked intercostal and sternal retractions corrected with continuous positive airway pressure administered by mask he now has dyspnea and tachypnea and x x-ray of his chest shows diffuse bilateral interstitial edema the most likely cause is increased so, again, it's asking kind of about the pathophysiology. So, A, airway reactivity, B, interpleural pressure, C, left ventricular afterload, D, right ventricular pre- preload, and E, transpulmonary vascular pressure.
0: Right. So, you know, I think transpulmonary vascular pressure makes the most sense. Um, yeah. And, as, you know, what they give you in that stem there is that he's having marked intercostal and sternal retractions, which, it, which indicates really – intense negative pressure that's being generated against a closed glottis. So now, again, we're thinking about that. Could this be, again, negative pressure pulmonary edema? And then they tell you the chest X-ray shows diffuse bilateral interstitial edema. So now we know that's what it is. So really what they're asking here is what is the process that leads to that uh, occurrence of the negative pressure pulmonary edema? And it is, as you described, that transpulmonary vascular pressure differential. You're creating this negative pressure across the alveolus and pulling that uh, fluid into the ovules. Yeah.
1: So just to review the real high yield points for laryngospasm on a standardized ABA exam situation is going to be the algorithm for treatment and then the pathophysiology of like, why does it occur? And that stem that we talked about is really common. It's like these young, healthy, really strong, like 19, 20 year old kids coming in uh, who after extubation have maybe a little saliva, tickle their cords and they go into laryngospasm. Those are the, like for me, that's when I see it absolutely the most frequently
0: and then you know remember that you can see negative pressure pulmonary edema, as you said before jillian not only with laryngospasm but anytime someone is breathing against a closed airway right. which includes biting the endotracheal tube is the other place we see it quite a lot often because we forgot to put in a bite block or we put in a poor bite block which they can bite through right. awesome great review of these two uh, keywords jillian thanks so much for coming back and doing it we'll do another one soon sounds good thank you all right keywords part two that was great We got a lot of, as I said, great feedback from all of you out there uh, that you enjoy these and find them high yield, so we'll keep doing them. Let us know what you think. Go to ACRAC.com. You can leave a comment. Let us know if you have anything to add. Everyone can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. And of course, if you would like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P A T R E O N.com slash ACCRAC, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference. You can, of course, also go to paypal.me slash ACRAC if you prefer to do it that way. Thank you so much to those who are already patrons thank you to brian park for the outlines you've done for some of the episodes and of course a huge thank you to the man who composed our original akrak music that's dr dennis quo check out his website at studymusicproject.com all right that is it for today for the Acrag podcast and dr jillian isaac i'm Jed waltlaw thanks for listening remember what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued
2: Thank you.